Welcome to Faked, an original podcast highlighting the underground world of counterfeit illegal items around the world and how to spot them. Whether you're traveling the world or buying online, Faked will be your guide. With your host, Joseph Rowan, you'll explore the many ways counterfeiters can pull off disguising everyday consumer items as the genuine good. Welcome back, everybody, to Faked. We're going to be talking about champagne this week, specifically fake champagne, because um, that's something that we all, I feel like, enjoy, you know, celebratory. And uh, there is a very strict guideline as to what is considered champagne and what is not considered to be champagne. But we're going to talk about that um, and the history of it. And yeah, it'll be it'll be exciting. So um, we've done a few episodes on like alcohol we have done one episode on fake wine if you want to check that one out so this kind of falls within that territory but this is a kind of a specific wine um and a very protected wine so we'll talk about why it's so dang protected and then what even makes like champagne champagne and what uh what even is you know just champagne in general so first of all we like to do history. That's where we'd start off. So if you guys are familiar with the podcast, we always go through the history first. This is kind of like the formula. History, kind of what gives it value. You know that We like to go through the history of it because without the history of it, there'd be no value, which means nobody would care whether it was faked or not. Um, there's no money to be made. It's kind of the rule of, our, um, of the podcast here is that anything that has value or anything that could be faked is probably faked. So, all right jump into the history of it. What is champagne? Okay. So champagne is a sparkling wine that comes from the champagne region of northeastern France. Um, if it's bubbly wine from another region, it's considered sparkling wine, not champagne. We'll talk about kind of how other companies still try to masquerade as champagne, even though they are technically sparkling wine. Um, although I don't want you getting the wrong idea, they are made the exact same way. But the Champagne region has such a classification of like their grapes and it's the grapes that come from the particular soil and the mild climate in the Champagne region that makes it Champagne. So many people kind of just use the Champagne generically for any sparkling wine. You wouldn't be wrong to do so. Um, I mean, it's like the Gyro Giro kind of thing where it's like, well, that's more, that's the, actually, that's a bad comparison because that's just like a mispronunciation. This is like, um, I guess, like the Kleenex, Kleenex and tissue. You know, like it is a particular brand and people just kind of apply it with a broad brush over sparkling wine. Plus, champagne's so fancy sounding. Sparkling wine sounds like, you know, you're at church. I don't know. It seems it sounds like that. So um, the French have maintained their legal right uh, to call their wine champagne for over a century. So the Treaty of Madrid since 1891 established this rule and the Treaty of Versailles reaffirmed it. So if you didn't know that, that's pretty crazy. So there's actually a legal ramification and um, we can hopefully we'll talk later about like the amount of lawyers every year that are just on the prowl for companies. Um which we could probably talk about this later more um, in depth. But um, there are some companies out there that just throw champagne on it, like willy-nilly, and then they're not technically champagne. So it's pretty crazy. Um, All right, so the European Union helps protect this exclusivity now, although certain American producers producers still generically use champagne on their labels. 
um, if they were using the term before the early 2006. So that's kind of one of the things that got through the cracks. Um, I don't know if it's grandfathered in technically, but I know the European Union, they do protect um, what's made over in the EU and stuff like that. So maybe that's the big difference is the fact that uh, it's the Americans. The Americans are doing, um, I mean, like Cook's, Cook's does it, Cook's Wine. They do champagne on theirs. Um, and a few other ones, even Russia. Russia joins in on that. So um, how is champagne made? So sparkling wines can be made in a variety of ways, but traditionally uh, champagne comes to life by a process called the méthode champagnois. Champagne starts its life just like any other normal wine, so the grapes are harvested, pressed, and allowed to undergo a primary Fermentation, I just imagine, um, I think we've, maybe we all do this, but uh, you see the barrels and you just got people stomping in your grapes, pulverizing them with their nasty feet. But um, contrary to that cartoon I think we've got all in our head, uh, they do some pretty awesome stuff um, in these huge vats, these huge wooden vats that are awesome. You should look it up. So I know I can't show you here, but you should definitely look it up, how wine is made. It's Especially on the larger scale, it's it's pretty cool. Um, pretty, I guess, uh, satisfying too. So the acidic results of the process are then blended and bottled with a bit of yeast and sugar uh, so it can undergo a secondary fermentation in the bottle. So actually most of the fermentation happens within the bottle. So it's the secondary fermentation that gives champagnes its bubbles. So they're not really trapping it with bubbles, like putting it in. Because I always wondered how they did that. Like how do you fill a bottle up and then just like move it along without just exploding everywhere. But it looks like that fermentation actually happens in the bottle. So that's cool. Um, the new year, the new yeast starts doing its work in the bottle and then dies and become what's known as lees. So that's L-E-E-S. The bottles are then stored horizontally so the wine can age on lees. So that's a 15-month or more process. So L-E-E-S is what um, becomes of when the yeast dies. So, yeah, there's some death going on in that uh, champagne bottle of yours, but it ta- it's tasty death, and I think we can all agree on that. Um, so after the aging, winemakers turn the bottles upside down so the lees can settle in the bottle's neck. Once the dead yeast have settled, producers open the bottle to remove the yeast, add a bit of sugar known as dosage to determine the sweetness of the champagne, and slip a cork onto the bottle. So it looks like maybe the death comes out of it, so they remove the yeast Hmm, that's kind of interesting. Um, we're learning. We're learning a lot here about Champagne. So uh, what's so special about the Champagne region? We talked a little bit about it uh, just because it's super temperate. And I think it's like 50 degrees Fahrenheit, which is pretty crazy considering I never thought of France as being like a cold climate. And that, yeah, that's Fahrenheit. When I saw 50, I was like, well, is that? Well, 50 Celsius would be like 200 degrees. So... Probably not that one. So uh, it was Fahrenheit and pretty interesting. I think they have like a lot of mountains and stuff like that. So what is so special about the Champagne region? So several factors make the Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, and Pinot Muenoir, Muenoir, M-E-U-N-I-E-R grapes grown in the Champagne region particularly well suited for crafting delicious wine. So the northern location makes it a bit cooler 
um, than France's other wine-growing regions, which is what we were talking about, um, which gives the grapes the proper acidity for sparkling wine production. So, moreover, the porous, chalky soil of the uh, area, the result of large earthquakes, you know, millions of years ago, aids in drainage. So, from what I was watching, it looks like clay is really big. Chalk and clay are like huge, which I didn't think anything would grow in that at all. But maybe it's just present in the dirt because I assume dirt had to be a big part of it because I, I would assume chalk and clay does not actually have any nutrients in it that can be absorbed into these um, plants. So uh, here's another question is, do I have to buy champagne to get good sparkling wine? So not at all um, because many, many champagnes are delightful. Obviously no, people know that, but most of the world's wine regions make tasty sparkling wines on their own. So you can find that in California, Spain, Italy, Australia, and other um, areas without having to spend some crazy money on some Dom Perignon, which we'll talk about Dom Perignon too. He's a very important figure when it comes to this and also a friggin' delicious wine. Very expensive. So um, there's plenty of other wine in other areas. So like Spumanti, you've got Cava, uh, you got Sparkling Wine, and you got some other ones. Um, but they, each region kind of has their thing. And But Champagne seems to be definitely the most prestigious so, speaking of Dom Perignon, who the heck was this guy, and why is he attached to my sparkling wine and making it so dang expensive, okay? So, contrary to popular misconception, the namesake of the famous brand didn't invent champagne, but Perignon, a Benedictine monk who worked as a cellar master in an abbey near um, Epernay during the 17th and 18th centuries, did have quite an impact on the champagne industry. So in Perignon's day, sparkling wine wasn't really a sought-after beverage. It was kind of like the lobster of uh, the early 1700s where nobody wanted it. It was terrible. It was stanky. Um, nobody wanted it. So in Perignon's day, um, nobody wanted the sparkling wine. So in fact, the bubbles were considered to be something of a flaw and early production methods made producing the wine somewhat dangerous. Okay. So like imprecise temperature controlled could lead to um, fermentation starting again. And after the wine was in the bottle. So if one bottle in a cellar exploded and a cork shot out, a chain reaction would start and it's just like a Benny Hill kind of just explosions like a minefield so that's kind of crazy it seems like that would be uh, dangerous for sure so perion um helped stabilize production methods to avoid these explosions and he also added two safety features to his wine so thicker glass bottles that better withstood pressure and a rope snare that helped keep the cork in place which we're all super familiar with um you know trying the millions of methods to get it off but um, that was a, that's a cool one. I love the way, um, oh, it's so satisfying undoing that little metal, I don't know, strand around it, around the cork, and then just popping it. Amazing. So what's the difference between brute and extra brute champagne? Uh, that's kind of another question I was seeing on here just while we're learning about the history. So you'll see these terms on champagne labels to describe how sweet the good stuff in the bottle is. So as mentioned um before this, obviously, a bit of sugar, known as the dosage, is added to the bottle right before it's corked, and these terms uh, describe exactly how much sugar goes into it. So, extra brute has less than 6 grams of sugars per liter, while brute contains less than 15 grams of additional sugar per liter. So, um, several other classif uh, classifications exist, but drier champagnes are more common. So, it seems like if you want less sugar, you're just going to get that. You're going to need that extra brute. Sounds pretty cool. So, 
here's kind of like a fun fact, um, just kind of to add on to the history of this. So why do athlete, athletes or you know rappers ever spray each other with champagne after winning titles? So throughout its history, champagne has always been a celebratory drink so that uh, they make appearances and coronations of kings and the launching of ships. You've probably seen that where they crash the bottle on it. However, the bubbly spraying throwdowns that now um, accompany most athletic victories are much more recently developed. So when Dan Gurney and A.J. Foyt won the grueling 24 hours of Le Mans race in 1967, they ascended the winner's podium with a bottle of champagne in hand. Gurney looked down and saw another um, team owner, Carol Shelby and Ford Motors CEO Henry Ford II, standing with some journalists and decided to have a bit of fun. So Gurney gave the bottle a shake and sprayed the crown. A, the crowd and a new tradition was born. So that's pretty crazy. I didn't know. So it looks like something just invented on the spot. Pretty interesting stuff uh, for sure. Um, so yeah, what the heck is, um, let's go on to what the heck is fake champagne. So we talked about fake wine, but um, there is a ton of news stories about like seized counterfeits. And uh, basically they're stepping on the toes of this particular region, which is huge. And we talked about the amount of lawfulness that comes with it. Uh, when you're talking about um, it's just something mislabeling. So, you know, it's not really champagne because it doesn't come from the champagne region. It doesn't have the same quality. doesn't have the same grapes. doesn't have the same taste. doesn't have any of that same stuff. So it is disingenuous. And then some people will literally, because there are very expensive champagnes, which we'll go over later. People just re-bottle stuff. I mean, so like if they have a Dom Perignon bottle, they drank the you know stuff and then put a cheaper wine in there. That happens a lot and on a huge scale. So how do you spot fake champagne? Obviously, knowing the history and whereabouts of you know this stuff's huge because we did talk about how they would potentially just use a Dom Perignon bottle, but. They can also, like, those are expensive too, just the bottle itself. So what people do is they copy the bottles. They copy the bottles. They copy the um, stuff, but with that, or the label. But with that, you know, they're going to make some mistakes. So it's really good to know what a real one looks like and then where you can get these things properly. Uh, most of the time, since wine, and I hate to say it, but, uh, you know, there's such a markup on it. It's crazy. So they have, like, reps. They have uh, rewards. Like, they want you buying these things. They'll give you stuff with it. Like it's it's definitely an experience. So how do we spot these fake champagnes? Okay, so the taste. So if you're familiar with champagne, and especially if you know the quality and standard of the label you are being served, um, then you should instantly be able to spot a problem. So um, this would not be a fault um, as in the wine being corked. It uh, would be that you can taste the difference. And especially if served a lesser quality champagne or another sparkling wine substitute like a Cremant, Cava, Spumante, you'll be able to know the difference. If, you, if you're if you forking this kind of money out, you would have at least tried it before usually. I mean, there's exemptions, obviously. Like there's people who you always have to try it the first time. It's not like that comes with some baggage, like you've tried it before. So um, obviously you try it the first time, usually on a smaller level, like uh, out of somebody else's bottle and they have done the same. They got it out of somebody else's bottle. They tried a little bit, loved it. So let's talk about the bottle next. So the bottle is so important. Uh, we just talked about how thick the bottles need to be. So uh, many finer champagnes will come in a specifically shaped bottle. So make sure you're familiar with the latest design or the design relevant to that particular vintage. Um, like Dom Perignon hasn't changed a lot when you look back in time. I mean, the aging happens. You can see it on the label. 
So that's important too, but um, they can fake that stuff too. Um, and then we talked about it in the fake wine episode that they will actually put like fake sediment in the bottom of these fake wines um, just to throw people off. Like it's crazy. It's just, it's crazy. Like what people will go through. And that's what we're all about here is talking about and exposing these individuals. So next up, let's talk about the packaging. So check the packaging to include a label. So back in front and then the neck of the bottle, which uh, could compose of a foil capsule and cork. Real Champagne will have the name of the producer on the label and also address to at least uh, include the name of the town or village. So check the likes of the fonts, colors, logos, um, as many copies are just like a little different because a lot of these fonts are proprietary and they don't get leaked out. So they kind of have to like whip one up and they're usually off by a bit. So you can also check for the professional registration code, NM or RM, uh, in the lower corner of the label followed by some numbers. Okay. So this is what we were talking about too, is the bottle showing the correct age? So does the bottle show its age, especially if it's a vintage or many years ago? Does it look all too new? Or maybe it looks falsely worn, which um, they will do, they'll rub like coffee water on it, uh, dirty damage, that kind of stuff. You, got, you wanna look at all that stuff. Uh, study the bottle carefully and question anything that goes, or it just doesn't add up, especially if you're paying out huge amounts of money. You know, this is a commodity. This is something you want to be real because you are spending a lot of money on it. So, all right, so weighing everything up. Um, so when we're talking about everything, so you need to go um, with what your head says. And then again, sometimes it is a gut feeling uh, that makes kind of decisions for us. So either way, if in doubt, it's good to um, always kind of present yourself with a too good to be true situation, then politely decline the purchase. So you could weigh up all the facts that we just talked about who you're buying from, the price, the rarity of the wine, the condition. Was there even a wine produced that year? Because that's another thing is when you look at some of these wines, maybe they just had a really bad frost and they were not able to make a wine that particular year. Happens all the time. You can look it up. So another one uh, is to check online. So many finer wines are spoken about online to include photos and videos. So even if you don't have an authentic one, with you um, a quick check just kind of online you will find similar images and you'll have people ripping and roaring about how great that's the great thing about the internet is it really isolates a lot of these cult these subcultures that just know things like that nobody else could know should know like couldn't dream about knowing that they know this stuff and they put the information they love talking about it so there will be plenty of options for you to check your wine out online so um and then kind of lastly uh, second opinions so if you're making a really big purchase just talk to like a local vendor um i mean you could talk to a wine store maybe you have um you know, they, they may try to press their own stuff, but at least they're going to know what it looks like. Uh, and they're going to know like, oh, that person's known for not producing good stuff or faking or they're blacklisted. There's a lot of different stuff. So, all right. So we talked about what the heck makes one of these fake and the cool history of this champagne. So uh, let's talk about most expensive stuff. We always like to attach numbers to things. So number 10 is the Dom Perignon Reserve de la Abeille. Um, this one's like a really good, it's a blend of Pinot and Chardonnay, uh, and it's the flagship wine maintained by the Moet and Chandon house. This one goes for about 1500 or uh, $1,100, $1,100. Um, and it's like the Dom Perignon gold, you know, that the little gold bottle, that's cool. So next up nine, not surprising. Another Dom Perignon P3 
Plenitude Brut Rose, eh? So, um, this is a rose champagne sold for about 1900 bucks. All right, so next is Dom Perignon, White Gold Brut. And uh, this one's in, it sounds awesome. I've never had it, but uh, it has the scents of exotic fruits such as juicy mangoes and spices such as white pepper. Wow, so that's about 2200 bucks. Okay, the Krug, Clos de Ambenet. That's K-R-U-G. Let's see what's up with this one. Okay, this was launched in 2007. It's an extraordinary bottle of champagne. It's fashioned in the Ambeni Vineyard. One of the rarest and finest Pinot Noir vineyards in the region of the Champagne. It's 100% rich Pinot Noir um, and runs about 2500 bucks. Okay, so Boral and Croft Brut. This is about $2,600. Wow, $2,600 bucks for that that one. And we're only on number six. So let's do to five. Let's go to five. So Louis Rodinier Cristal Venothic Edition Millesmine uh, Millesime Rose Brut. Oh my gosh, I feel like just for you to know these, they should be paying you money just to remember half of this stuff. Okay, this one was a $2,600 one, and it's a it is a 55% Pinot Noir and a 45% Chardonnay. Cristal, so we know that. Okay, number four is a Boral and Croft, and I'm probably butchering that, but um, we're going to continue on. Brut Rosé, this one's $2,800. Um, that one doesn't really have any, doesn't really have a lot behind it, um, but, you know, we're just going to trust the experts. All right, so number three is the Louis Rodirer, Rodirer, Cristal Gold Medallion. Um, this one is a limited edition brute. Um, and this one is introduced in 2002, and it is $3,800. So we're really just pushing up on this one. This one um, is supposed to deliver a specific and pure blend of sweet flour, roasted hazelnuts, cacao, and candied citrus fruits. And then, then the champagne erupts sweet flavors of white chocolate and caramel, along with a red and red and ripe fruits with a silky and delicate texture. Gosh, that sounds good. And for 3800 bucks a bottle, it should. Um, Moet, this is number two, Moet and Chandon, Dom Perignon, Charles and Diane in 1961. I think we're going to go up a lot here. No, I guess it's not that much more. I mean, it's still a lot, but this one um, makes it quite high on like the list of expensive ones uh, because it was handpicked by the Royal Royals. So Dom Perignon was selected as the champagne of choice for Prince Charles and Lady Diana uh, for the nuptials in 1981, and the brand chose to serve the vintage 1961 Magnum Dom Perignon in honor of the princess's year of birth. The bottle was inscribed with a special emblem to mark the special occasion. This one runs for about 4,700 bucks. All right, so number one, oh my God, okay, this one's a bit of a jump. Number one is the gout. Doesn't sound uh, like a great start. Gout uh, de diamants. Taste of diamonds is what it means, I guess. So this one is the most luxurious. So the bottle of champagne is designed for the richest of the rich and comes with a price tag to prove it. The label is crafted from pure white gold while the diamond pewter in the center comes encrusted with Swaborski gems, defining the pinnacle of luxury. So introduced in 2013 by Shami Shi, Shami Shen, founder of the um, Prodigeur in London, Gout de Dimantes is crafted with grand Grand Cru grapes that come from the family-owned Chapoy Farm in Ogier. You can experience this taste of diamonds for a whopping 
2.7 million dollars per bottle so that jumped quite a bit from 4,000 or almost 5,000 so guys that's the most expensive now you realize why people are faking this because it's crazy and um I mean those uh those are like the most expensive but there are some isolated bottles that were like oh like uh Elvis had this in his locker and uh now we're selling it so those are like they're selling but they're like one-offs these are steady bottles that you can purchase and that's what makes them so important so guys remember um i well for one i hope you guys enjoyed this one um this one was a fun one and uh if you guys check out my tiktok we got a bunch of stuff on there too and uh yeah i'll be doing a lot more on there as well so guys remember with faked items there are those that produce them those that purchase them and those that listen to this podcast i will see you guys in the next episode bye